This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to Session 18, Power of the Spirit, Part B, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Zor Fellowship. Okay, so we're in Part B of Session 18. And this session, we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're getting close to the end of the series. <laughs> All right, so what, what, we're, what we're trying to talk about in this session is we want to answer this question. What does it look like to walk in the power of the Spirit? We want to walk in the Holy Spirit not just as a passive enterprise, but to actually serve God in a spirit-empowered way. Um, at the same time, there are competing visions of what that looks like out there. Uh, so in the first part of this session, we talked about uh, how we want to avoid a solely negative focus that only deals with all the ways that other people are wrong, uh, but we also want to avoid a naive and undiscerning stance because, let's be honest, there are people who have done wacky things and claimed it's the power of God's spirit. We have to have discernment. But we can't let need, the need for discernment quench our hunger for the true power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, last time we focused on uh, looking at the biblical basis for power. So we looked at scripture passages that speak of the power of the Holy Spirit and how this is something that we are called to participate in as well. Uh, That's something that is available for God's servants. And then we started into this topic of signs and wonders. Uh, Because a lot of people, when they hear that word power associated with the Holy Spirit, they immediately think of signs and wonders, miraculous things. And so we talked about that. What does the Bible say about signs and wonders? Uh, As we saw, there are lots of different signs and wonders that the Bible talks about. Um, Most of them are ones that God does that humans aren't really involved in. Read about signs and wonders in the end times. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon will be turned to blood, there will be blood, fire, and billows of smoke, and those aren't something we do, right? I think that's obvious. Um, It also talks about false signs and wonders in the end times, right? So this is where the need is for discernment. So today, we're going to talk about um, sort of continuing some of that theme uh, while branching out a little bit. Talking about power versus sensationalism. What's the difference between those two? And uh, next time, we'll finish off this session by talking about spiritual warfare. Okay, so for today, well, first of all, last time I suggested there are two major things, among other things, that prevent us from truly hungering for more of God's empowerment. Those two things are fear and apathy. Because sometimes we're afraid that God will take us out of our comfort zone. I mean, who isn't afraid of being taken out of your comfort zone? Isn't that what your comfort zone means? So, yeah, sometimes we're afraid of that. We're afraid that being empowered more by God's spirit will involve being taken out of our comfort zone. Other times, we just don't care, right? We just feel a lack of passion about it at the moment or a lack of, um, you know, just an apathy, right? We're too tired, we're too busy, we're discouraged. Another thing that prevents us from hungering for more of God's spirit is seeing those who have gone in directions that we feel are errant and claimed that it's the Holy Spirit. So our goal in this session is not to separate hunger 
from discernment, right? We want to we want to want more of God's spirit, but we want to also have discernment. All right, so today I want to focus on the difference between power and sensationalism, and this will be in three major parts. We'll talk about the role of emotions, we'll talk about manifestations, and then we'll talk about power for service. So let's talk about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and emotions. And today I want to focus on the principle that I'm, I'm sure most believers would agree with, and that is that there is a difference between the power of the Holy Spirit and man-made emotionalism. I think most people would be willing to agree with that. There's a difference between simply having strong emotions and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we agreed on that? Okay. So I want to rephrase this by looking at a series of propositions. What we're saying is that we disagree with statement A. Strong emotions are proof that the Holy Spirit is at work. Right? We're saying we disagree with that, right? So we disagree with statement A, so let's negate that statement. Strong emotions are not proof that the Holy Spirit is at work. We have statement B. Right? So this is, this is negating the entire statement. Notice, however, that if you only negate the last part, it's no longer true. You get statement C. Strong emotions are proof that the Holy Spirit is not at work. That's not necessarily the case, right? So we're arguing that statement B is true, statement A and C are false. The point is that when the Holy Spirit is at work, there may be strong emotions or there may not be. Neither the presence nor the absence of strong emotions is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work. Does this make sense so far? And maybe this all seems obvious, uh, but sometimes you have to state the obvious, right? I think that most believers would be able and willing to follow those, this logic and agree with me in principle on these things, but in practice, many believers operate as though statement A or statement C were true, right? They might not articulate it that way, but we tend to emphasize, and part of it may be a personality thing, right? We tend to emphasize emotions or de-emphasize emotions, and especially when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And now... I think statement A is a little more popular than statement C, simply because it's more fun to be excited and have an emotional buzz than to be passionless Stoics. Um, it's, uh, advertises a little better, I think. <laughs> but nonetheless, I've encountered believers in both camps, right? I've encountered people who have seen emotions as a detriment to experiencing the Holy Spirit. When you have emotions, that's actually preventing you from truly experiencing God's Spirit. And then on the flip side, there are others who say, if you don't have this emotional experience, you're not experiencing God's Spirit, right? So, oh. right. Yeah, um, experience versus knowledge, right? Some people are more experience-oriented in their faith, and some are more knowledge-oriented in their faith. And it goes back to that chart we had back in, in the introduction to this series of thinking versus feeling. You know, what, what type of person are you? And uh, all of us are a bit of both, right? Um, but some of us are more extreme in one or the other. All right. So my point in all this is to emphasize a distinction between the Holy Spirit and feelings. And again, this... I'm sure most people would say, well, yeah, of course, in principle, in theory, yeah, that's true. But sometimes in practice, um, we get these mixed up. So there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit and feelings. Feelings aren't bad any more than thoughts are bad. You can have bad thoughts. You can have bad 
feelings, right? Um, but they're, that, just because it's possible to have bad thoughts doesn't mean we should all stop trying to have thoughts, right? That would be ludicrous. Thoughts are part of who we are as humans, just like feelings are part of who we are as humans. And our point is that we are called to serve God with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our actions, and uh, is there anything else that makes you a person? <laughs> your will, your, yeah, all of you. All of all y'all, uh, it's all of us, all of our, who we are, that we are called to serve God with, right? We should cultivate a passion for Yeshua and for his word. We should engage our emotions in the way we serve and worship God. We ought to engage our feelings just as much as our intellectual capacity and our actions, right? We need to serve God with our whole heart, not just, not just emotions, not just thoughts, but all of who we are, right? Um, but our feelings are not the litmus test for our spirituality. Feelings are not proof that the spirit is at work, neither is the absence of feelings proof that he is not at work. I think, in my opinion, realizing that is liberating. Because sometimes I think there's a pressure that if you're not feeling a certain way, you're not experiencing God. And that can be really, um, really discouraging to be fed that message. And, you know, sometimes we go through seasons in our lives where we don't feel it. You try spending time in prayer and you're honestly not feeling it, right? And realizing that that's okay that doesn't mean that God is far away. Sometimes it feels like God's far away. But God's there all the time, whether we feel it or not. And we can rest in that. We can have peace in that. So I think, I think there's something encouraging in that message. I want to emphasize this, I'm bringing this up in this series because I think that many of us, without necessarily even realize it, without realizing it, we, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a holy feeling rather than a holy person. Use the word person in quotation marks because God is much more than just a person, right? But you get what I mean. Holy Spirit is a holy being, not a holy feeling. This becomes especially common in the way that many believers think of worship today. We could do an entire series on worship, and we probably will. Um, little plug for what's coming up next. <laughs> but, but right now, I want us to just think briefly about the way worship, the Holy Spirit, and emotions work together. For many believers today, the Holy Spirit is equated with the emotional, physiological response to a musical worship service. Think of like megachurch-style church service, right? Where you got 45 minutes of singing, half an hour of preaching, then everyone goes home. Uh, we tend to think of uh, that 45 minutes of singing, well, that's the, that's the worship part right? And, and the emotional resonance among those present is the Holy Spirit at work during the worship, right? So, so what this unintentionally says is that if you feel a certain way during that music time, then you have encountered the Holy Spirit. And in order to facilitate this encounter, uh, a certain atmosphere must be creative, Created, right? We have a certain style of music. We're not, uh, we're not playing big band swing or polka. We're, you know, it's a certain style, a certain atmosphere that you have to create, right? Um, and, and this is the goal of most contemporary Christian worship music. But one thing to keep in mind is that 
music has the ability to engage our emotions in a powerful way, whether, aside from it being religious music, right? Music in general is, uh, e you know, even secular music, right? Ask anyone who's into the concert scene, and they can attest that you can come away from a rock concert with an emotional buzz that lasts for days. Mankind has known this for ages. Plato once said, music and rhythm find their way into the secret places of the soul. And, you know, this can happen regardless of what kind of lyrics it is, right? Emotional responses to music often have nothing to do with the lyrics. They could be completely secular lyrics and still have the same effect. Personal opinion here, I think the shallow content of many worship songs these days is proof of that. You don't have to have very profound lyrics for it to still have an emotional effect on people, right? When we equate the Holy Spirit with that physiological human response, we're setting ourselves up for a shallow definition of worship, a shallow definition of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately, I would argue, a shallow spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to get emotionally involved in singing songs of praise and worship to God. In fact, I think that's a good thing. I think that's important, right? We're supposed to serve God and worship him with all our being, including our emotions. But what I'm trying to say is that that emotional connection is not proof of the Holy Spirit's presence or power, nor does its absence mean that the Holy Spirit is not present, right? So, the problem when we substitute emotions for the Holy Spirit is that worship suddenly becomes all about us. Because it's about me having that emotional experience in order to demonstrate that I've made, you know, spiritual contact or whatever you want to call it. I think this is evident in so many modern worship songs. You look at the lyrics and you ask yourself, what's the main focus in this song? Who is it primarily describing? And too, all too many worship songs these days are focused on describing me and my problems or me and my emotional experience. We spend more time singing about ourselves than we do singing about God. Moreover, when we substitute emotions for the Holy Spirit, suddenly, if emotions are lacking, then we've got a real problem. The Spirit's missing. And so, anyone remember this chart? Predestination versus free will. Some believers are prone to putting the onus on God, while others are prone to putting the onus on human responsibility. Right? Um, Calvinism versus Arminianism, that's how it plays out on the theological sphere, but it also plays out in other areas. The way we think of sin, the way we think of uh, prayer, how does prayer work, how does, like, it affects the way we think about spirituality in general, right? Is it God's prerogative or is it man's prerogative? Do we seek God or does God seek us? I mean, yeah. Anyway, I won't go there. <laughs> so, Pentecostalism came staunchly out of the Arminian camp. Um, the Holiness Movement, the Pentecostal Movement, um, and a lot of these other movements that put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, uh, especially in the earlier 1900s, they were all Arminian in theology. And most of the charismatic and neo-charismatic movements have followed suit. There has been, um, especially today, more of a resurgence of uh, Calvinist charismatics. Um, there are some notable ones. But uh, the movements themselves originated out of a, the more free will side of the spectrum. So there's, there's more of an emphasis on our hungering for God instead of just sitting and waiting around for God to do it himself whenever he feels like it, right? Um, there's more, uh, uh, there's, there's this seen, felt need for human initiative, right? So, like, you know, if you're 
in a worship service or you're leading a worship service and you feel like, man, the Holy Spirit just isn't here today. Whose fault is it? Fault. I put that in quotation marks, right? Do we, do we blame ourselves for it or do we blame God? Is it God's fault or his prerogative to make that happen? Do we just say, I guess God didn't feel like showing up today? Or do we say, no, we must have done something wrong and we need to change and take initiative to make sure that it happens. You can see how both sides can be a slippery slope leading you in an unhealthy direction, right? You go too far on either extreme, I think it's bad news. But if you combine an approach that focuses on human initiative instead of God's prerogative, if you combine that human approach with the assumption that the Holy Spirit is defined as a certain feeling, then it becomes our responsibility to make that feeling happen. Right? And this is why some churches are characterized by what I would call hype. If we want to see the Holy Spirit at work, and if I, consciously or unconsciously, equate the Holy Spirit with a certain set of emotions, and I believe it is my prerogative to make that happen, then I will do whatever it takes to drum up those emotions. And suddenly, without even realizing it, I've substituted man-made emotionalism for God's Holy Spirit. In my opinion, this is a subtle bait-and-switch. Hype is a poor substitute for God's presence. But it's easy for that to happen. You can see the logic behind it, right? The answer, of course, to all this is not to say that emotions are bad. Rather, the answer is to allow the true presence of the Holy Spirit to work and submit our entire being, our thoughts, our emotions, our will, our actions, to him. Here's a quote from Wesley Duell. Man-made enthusiasm and emotionalism is superficial and cheap. In real revival, emotion is not produced or manipulated by man. It is a response to the unsought, unexpected, but powerful working of God's Spirit upon the inner depths of people's souls. Let's talk about manifestations. When I say the phrase manifestations of the spirit, what sorts of things come to your mind? Good or bad? Flaming tongues on the apostles' heads? Yeah, that's a good one. Pew hopping? Is that a good or a bad one? <laughs> Barking like a dog? Healings. Yeah, that's a good one. True repentance. Seeing the gifts of the Holy Spirit as they're outlined in the Bible. Casting out demons, yeah. Yeah, the radical change, uh, radically changed life. Paul being an amazing example of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, like Paul being bit, bitten by a venomous snake and surviving is, we see all these things, physical things that are something that the Holy Spirit is, is doing. Walking on water? That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. All right, so depending on the brand of Christianity, um, it could mean different things, right? So most of the brands of Christianity that use this phrase, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, I think they have in mind um, some of the stuff you see in some, uh, some of the more third wave signs and wonders, neo-charismatic kind of groups, right? I made a, a brief list. Um, you guys have mentioned other things too. That's great. Uh, speaking in tongues, I think for a lot of people, they would see that as, I mean, we talked about this already. A lot of people consider that to be the definitive manifestation of the Holy Spirit based on Acts chapter 2. Prophesying. Another example. Healing. How about being slain in the Spirit? Anyone heard of that? That's, uh, that's a manifestation some groups would endorse. Slain in the spirit is when, uh, yeah, the, I think sometimes the pastor or the leader will put his hands on a person and then that person will suddenly fall, fall back. Um, and that's, that's 
the term that they use to describe that is being slain in the spirit. Good question. We'll talk about that in just a sec. <laughs> Uncontrollable laughter. Anyone heard of the, uh, uh, what was his name, Rodney Howard Brown? Uh, I think he got the nickname Holy Spirit Bartender because he would go around and, and preach at these groups and, and they would start to have this uncontrollable laughter spreading throughout the congregation. That was seen as a manifestation of the Spirit, that God's Spirit was at work through this, this guy. Um, Toronto Blessing, anyone familiar with that? They had holy laughter there as well. They, they called it holy laughter. Um, convulsions, people shaking and twitching and doing uncontrollable body movements. Gold dust, anyone heard of that one? Where, where, where did that become? Uh, was that the Pensacola? Or, or I'm sorry, the, where is it? In Florida, there was that revival where there was gold dust. Bethel, that uh, supposedly in an intense worship service, people will find all this gold dust sprinkled on the pews and on people too, I think. I, I don't know exactly. So is that a manifestation of the Spirit? Some people would say that is. Pew hopping. Animal noises. People uncontrollably barking like dogs or manifesting the appearance of an ape or uh, whatever. Okay, so to some people, these are the sorts of things that come to mind when we speak of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So what should we do with this stuff, right? What, what should we make of these things? Obviously, some of these have a biblical basis to them, uh, but then some of them just seem kind of weird, or is it just me? I mean, I don't want to be too harsh, but uh, they just seem kind of weird to me. <laughs> Didn't Yeshua use God's spirit to cast demons out of people who had convulsions? So, true. Or, or making animal noises? I don't know. Is there Nebuchadnezzar? Does that ring a bell? <laughs> um, that could be, yeah. If uh, people are having certain manifestations, are they manifesting demons rather than God's spirit? And being in the presence of God's spirit is bringing that to light. That's a possibility. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's the real question, is it, right? Are we missing out because we're not doing these things? I, this morning, I didn't see anyone barking. <laughs> Are we missing out on the Holy Spirit because of that, right? There, I didn't see any gold dust. Uh, that'd be... <laughs> yeah. So, should, are these things we should be experiencing? Are these things that it's okay to experience, but you don't have to experience? Or are these things that you should stay away from? I think we're, yeah, so we've talked about this, the Toronto Airport Church in the 90s. They started having these manifestations, um, a bunch of these things on the list they, they were witnessing. So are they from God, from man, or from the devil? Those are our three options, right? Are there any other options? Combination of different ones? Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing two different people describing their experience of visiting Toronto Airport Church uh, during the height of the revival. Both of these people agreed that the manifestations were supernatural. One person concluded that they were from God, while the other person concluded that they were demonic. How do you weigh these sorts of things? My goal today is not to come to a definitive answer on all that. Um, we don't have to come up with the true judgment on the Toronto blessing today. But I do want to touch on a few principles. I think there are some questions we can ask when we're assessing manifestations. First question is, 
Is it biblical? Second question, what's the fruit? Third question, to whom is attention being drawn? So, to our first question, is it biblical? Do we see any instances within scripture of people being so overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit that they begin laughing uncontrollably? Or, or gold dust? Do we see that anywhere in scripture? Now, we need to uh, be careful to admit that this criteria alone doesn't make something necessarily good or bad. For example, the Bible never makes any mention of pineapples. That doesn't mean that pineapples are inherently evil because they're not biblical, right? <laughs> it, you know, I personally don't think they belong in pizza, but that's another topic. Biblically, you know, we can't make an argument for or against pineapples just based on the Bible, right? We also, we can't put God in a box, right? God could, we have to admit, God could, if he really wanted to, do something completely new and unprecedented. I mean, God can do whatever he wants, right? He's not, he's not bound to what we think he should do. God, of, of course, will never act in ways contrary to his character or to his word. We can always trust him to uh, be faithful to his word and to fulfill his promises, right? He does what he says. But if God really wanted to sprinkle a crowd of worshipers with gold dust, with gold dust I mean, he can. <laughs> He's able to do that. Of course, my next question would be, why? Why would God do that? But, but I'm getting ahead of myself, right? So... Whether it's biblical or not, it's an important question. It's not the definitive question, because in theory, God could do something new, right? Nonetheless, I think if something's not found in Scripture, at least for me personally, I, I'm a little skeptical of it. I think it should rightly give us pause. We should uh, not be too quick to embrace it. So, let's... Being slain in the spirit, for example, right, where you fall backwards in the presence of God. Uh, why, why do they always fall backwards? You, you know, in scripture, we frequently read of God's people falling on their faces before God's presence. And it's only God's enemies who fall backwards. So what does that mean? Maybe that should make us think a little bit about this phenomenon. I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think that most of the stuff that we see can be accounted for as uh, common psychological uh, things, right? Uh, in, when you're in a situation of intense emotions, these are the sorts of phenomena that can happen in a, whether it's a secular setting or a uh, religious setting or whatever, right? So I, I don't think it's necessarily spiritual, if we want to use that term. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard that. I've heard that in, in some places you, you go up to pray and they'll actually push you over. And uh, so, you know, and you could see how that could happen if you start to expect this, if you start to expect being slain in the spirit as a sign of the spirit's power, and you believe it's your responsibility to help facilitate that and make that happen, you can see how it could lead to doing that sort of thing, right? And, yeah, I mean, we, we do read in Scripture of people who, like I think it's Daniel, talks about being in the presence of even just an angel and losing all his strength and things like that. And John in the book of Revelation, um, before Yeshua, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there is, there certainly is biblical precedent for being so overcome with the majesty of God that we can't, we can't hold ourselves up anymore. Um, but then to go to 
to expect that and assume that this is the proof that God's spirit is at work, I think that's where we start to cross a line. And, and that's where we're prone to take matters into our own hands and start to manip manipulate things to make it happen. All right. So the second question is, what is the fruit? What's the purpose or the result of a particular manifestation? I'd like to propose that when the Holy Spirit is truly at work in someone, the result is changed lives. And, I mean, this is based on all the stuff we've been studying up till now, right? The Holy Spirit comes... And he's called the spirit of holiness for a reason, right? Ruach HaKodesh, spirit of holiness. He's the one who makes us holy. He's the one who um, empowers us to follow God. He enables us to carefully obey his rules. We read that in the last session, right? Ezekiel 36. He's the one that enables us to live holy lives. And so if people are having all kinds of manifestations, but they go home and their lives are the same as they always were before? I, I don't think we can say that the Holy Spirit was truly at work. And in my opinion, this is the biggest difference between true power and hype. Are people's lives being changed? I'm talking about long-term change, an in-the-moment reaction of feigned commitment that doesn't last is not real proof. This is something that Wesley Duell in his book on revival emphasizes that true converts made in a true revival are lasting converts. People who dedicate their lives to the Lord when God's spirit is truly at work, it's a lasting commitment. It's not just, a, you know, I'm worked up in the heat of the emotion and I sign a card, but then I go and, and there's no follow-up, right? So there's a difference between when God's spirit's truly at work and when there's just man-made emotionalism and psychological phenomena. Okay, so third question is, to whom is attention being drawn? And I think this is a big litmus test. Where is the attention going? Um, John, we've looked at these verses before, so hopefully you remember them, but... Let's look at them again. John 15, 26. John 15, 26. Yeshua is talking here, and he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then let's jump down to John 16, verse Verses 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Yeshua says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, meaning Yeshua, right? If attention is being drawn to anything or anyone other than Yeshua, we should question whether this is really the Holy Spirit. Notice that it's not the Holy Spirit's nature to glorify himself, but to glorify Messiah. The Holy Spirit is not trying to draw attention to himself, but trying to point all attention to Yeshua. In a truly Spirit-filled community, you may not even notice the Spirit you will notice Yeshua. Similarly, if attention is being drawn to a person, then I think we need to be questioning what's going on there. Remember, last week, we noted that the Bible warns us about false signs and wonders. Right? If, if attention is being drawn toward the leader who's supposedly filled with power, then I would suggest that it's false. Here's another quote from Wesley Duell. Any power manifested in the ministry of one who is not marked by deep humility is counterfeit power. It is not God's power. It may be psychological power. 
It could even be the power of Satan who delights to pose as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11.14. We've talked about this before, but the Holy Spirit is not this impersonal force like in Star Wars that you can tap into through mystical uh, disciplines. It's not this metaphysical power at our disposal available through mind power techniques or things like that. It's God. The Holy Spirit is God. We don't use the Spirit. The Spirit uses us. It's not a power that we wield. It's not a power that we make use of, that we tap into. It's God's Spirit working and using us. We cannot manipulate the Spirit. We can't use God's power for our own means. I mean, this is what magic is, essentially. Magic is the idea that you can manipulate the forces of nature or of, or of the spirits to do what you want to do. This is impossible with God. We can't manipulate God. <laughs> we can never do that. True manifestations of the spirit ought to result in changed lives and ought to glorify Yeshua ought to turn the focus to him, not to ourselves. The power of God's spirit is not given to dazzle and entertain, but to empower us for the job that he has given us. Remember last time we talked about how we need to be content with our daily manna, right? Like you think of the manna in the wilderness, and it was this supernatural nourishment from God, this amazing thing. Any of us in this room would love to have a taste of that manna. And they didn't really appreciate it. They got bored of it. I mean, can you imagine getting bored of something miraculous and spectacular like that? Getting bored of this miraculous spiritual food, as Paul calls it. Sometimes we get bored of the amazing, spectacular spiritual nourishment that God gives us. And the temptation is always to go out seeking that new thing, that new buzz, that new sensational thing to satisfy this craving. But sensationalism will never truly satisfy our spiritual hunger. Only the true, reliable, slow, long-term work of God's God's Spirit in our hearts can do that. Okay, let's talk about power for service. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there definitely is a balance. Uh, it, the one extreme is to become uh, so independent that I can't ever let anyone else speak into my life. And I, th- you know, If I become arrogant and think, I have a direct line of communication with God, no one else can tell me what God says to me, Um, but I don't realize the blind spots I have, right? Um, Whereas in a community, in a healthy community, we're able to encourage one another, exhort one another, and correct one another when necessary. And, um, you know, I get this vision in my head, God told me to go do this, and other people in the community can be like, I don't think so, <laughs> you know, right? And, and, and help us by pointing us to Scripture and working through this together. Well, I always think if, if God really wants to tell us something, he, he can and he often does use multiple means, right? Um, and... Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm with you that I'd be skeptical of someone saying, God told me to tell you, but then there being no other sort of confirmation. or uh, It's different when someone makes a comment and they don't necessarily know that it's speaking to something that you are already dealing with or struggling with or whatever, right? I, like, I, think, th- I think that's different. Yeah, the idea of two or three witnesses, right? Um, God, God can confirm his word to us. And if it's something that like, is a real matter of seeking God's direction, I mean, we, sh- we should be uh, open to praying that God will reveal to us through multiple means 
you know, speak to us in as audible a voice as necessary to get our attention about what he's trying to lead us to do. I think God's gracious to us. I, I think he's, he's willing to do that with us. He knows that we're frail, weak, hard-hearted, whatever it is. He knows he sometimes needs to do more than just whisper to get our attention. And he's gracious enough to us that he does. Yeah. Well, um, we do have a six-part session on the topic of the gift of prophecy. So if you missed any of those, uh, I think most of those are on the website. You can, and they will all be on the website soon. You can check it out if you like. Um, so let's talk a bit about God's power. We've been focusing kind of on the negative side of things so far. I, I don't want to end on that. I want to end by like looking at a more positive perspective. What is God's power? And, you know, how can we hunger for more of God's power? What does that look like in our lives? Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, Paul makes the statement that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In the context, he's talking about how he's going to come, he's going to make a visit to Corinth soon, and that some of these people who are being all arrogant and uppity and talking bad about Paul, he's going to say, you know, well... I, w I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, right? And then he makes this statement, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. There are other passages, and we looked at, we looked at these, um, yeah, the last time, um, that talk about the power of the Holy Spirit being at work within us. So what does this look like? Um, it's not hyper-emotionalism, bizarre manifestations or, you know, har haranguing people from the pulpit, psychological manipulation. That's not what this is talking about, right? The power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to suggest, is evidenced by, I've already mentioned this, changed lives. People change to pursue a life of holiness. An ongoing awareness of God's presence effectiveness in ministry, God's worth going forth in a way that has impact, that accomplishes its purpose, zeal and enthusiasm for God in his word, a hunger to know God more. I think these are the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit offers us. Another quote here from Wesley Duell. God created us to be filled with the Spirit and to long for evidence of the Spirit's working. I'm not speaking primarily about spiritual gifts. The primary evidences to which I refer are God's anointing, guidance, assistance in prayer, and answers to prayer through the Spirit. I'm also speaking of the pervading sense of God's presence in a service and evident in the ministry of God's servant leaders. This isn't a power that we use, like we've said already, God uses us. The Spirit uses us. I'm inclined to believe that most of the time when God works, it is to one extent or another in spite of us. We're never perfect. It's not because we do everything right that he shows up. Right? He decides on his own sovereign will when and how to act. But that doesn't mean that our goal should be to always have God working in spite of us. We want to be vessels that God can use. We want to be conduits of his power. We want to be um, tools in his hands, right? We need to strive to be humble and submitted to his will and receptive to his working in us and through us. God forgive us if the only time he uses us mightily is when he's compelled to work in spite of our spiritual condition. Another point, and we've talked a bit about this in previous sessions, I want to look at, I'm going to look quickly at two verses. One is the end of Luke, and the other is the beginning of Acts that talks about the Holy Spirit's power. 
Luke 24:49 says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's this promise Yeshua gives of power from on high. And then that's reiterated again in Acts chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's this, this power that Yeshua promises his disciples that they will receive. And of course, we see that um, being played out in Acts chapter 2 and over the course of the entire book of Acts. We might argue that, oh, well, that was just for the apostles. But I think there is a sense in which each of us are given this opportunity and this commission, right? The great commission to go and be God's witnesses, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, I firmly believe was not just for that generation, but is for all of us who follow Yeshua. And this power that Yeshua prophesied would come, I believe that's for all of us as well. The point of this, though, is that the Holy Spirit comes for a reason. He comes for a purpose. He gives us power for a purpose, not just so that we can have a good time. <laughs> I've been in situations where, you know, in a, in a service there's, where there's worship or prayer going on or um, things like that, where to me it, felt like God's spirit was working, at least in my heart. And, and there is just this mass um, outpouring of love and adoration to God um, from the worshipers present. And it was this incredible emotional experience. I mean, you know, I've, I've experienced that sort of things, same thing a couple of times in my life, and each time it's like, man, that was amazing. But it always raises the question as, well, what is God's purpose in doing this? Because he always does it for a purpose. God does not waste his breath. God does not pour out his spirit and have it not accomplish something. And so if we have that kind of amazing experience, but it doesn't do something, it doesn't change us long-term, it doesn't send us out propelled in his power to do what he's called us to do, was it really God's spirit? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, those emotional experiences, if the fruit of the spirit is lacking... I don't think we can say those experiences are the Holy Spirit. I think when the Holy Spirit shows up, there will be the fruit <laughs> to show for it. You look at every time the Holy Spirit, uh, go, going back to what session was that? Session three or four? The Holy Spirit in the Tanakh. Every time the Holy Spirit empowers someone in the Tanakh, it says something like this, the Holy Spirit came upon so-and-so and he or she did such-and-such. Such. I think it's pretty much always he in the Tanakh. Um, there's a purpose, right? It doesn't say the Holy Spirit came upon so-and-so and they had a really good time. <laughs> there's a result that takes place. The Holy Spirit doesn't empower us to watch TV. So when we're saying we want the Holy Spirit, we want to experience God's Spirit, we want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, what we're really saying is we want a job. We want a task. Lord, here I am. I'm ready. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Give me my assignment. And if we're not willing to say that, what business do we have wanting the Spirit? Why would we want to be empowered if all we want to do is just sit at home and do nothing? As I've argued in, and I forget which session this was, but looking at um, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, I believe the primary task that all of us as followers of Yeshua have today is the Great Commission, the task to go out and make disciples. And I believe 
virtually every instance of the Spirit working in our hearts today is somehow related to that task. Somehow it's related to this mission of going out and making disciples. And so those two should go together. Wanting more of God's power and wanting to be his witnesses need to work together. There's there's this balance between control, prerogative, and responsibility. You know, like we looked at that predestination versus free will chart, right? We can't control the spirit. John 3, the wind blows wherever it pleases, right? Uh, Paul says, and he doesn't use the term manifestations, he uses the term gifts, charismata, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They're, they're, they're not something we do, they're not something we make up or conjure up, they're something that he graciously gives us. It's his prerogative to do that. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit in us drives us to a state of being out of control. We looked at that when we looked at 1 Corinthians 12. According to Paul, we are not to be characterized as being swept away like the pagans. 1 Corinthians 12.2. Paul says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. 1 Corinthians 14.32. There's God's spirit is opposed to chaos. Genesis 1 verse 2. Right? There's still a sense of order when the Holy Spirit is working. It may not be our order, maybe God's order, may disrupt some of our human um, structures, but it is still, it is not chaotic. On the other hand, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit is God's prerogative. We can't conjure it up. We can't make revival happen. We can't make the Holy Spirit work in power. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean we have no responsibility. The other extreme is to say that we have the Holy Spirit by default and there's nothing that we can do. I believe we are called to hunger for him more, and our responsibility is to be obedient and submissive to him. We do our best and we look to him to do the rest. You know, I've often wished and prayed that God would just take over my body and subdue my own will and inhibitions to the point where I'm no longer in control of myself, but he's in complete control and can just use me however he wants. I've often wished that, and I've often prayed for something to that effect. And I think deep down we're all attracted to something like that, right? But God usually doesn't work that way. He doesn't want robots, for some reason, God chooses to work with messy flesh and blood. No, ha- no matter how spirit-filled we get, we always retain our individuality and our free will. We can't take God's power for granted. We see this in the story of Samson. We see this in the story of Saul. Just because God was at work in us or through us way back when doesn't mean that he's at work today. When we make compromises with sin or when we walk in our own stubbornness, we can't presume on God to work. I think that a lot of believers today and maybe all of us to an extent, we suffer from this fast food mentality that's part of our culture around us. You know, we're, we're in trouble the moment that we think we can become spiritual by having some sort of experience, whether it be in an emotionally charged worship service or uh, some sort of prayer, or, um, some spiritual encounter. If we think that we can become spiritual by having that experience without putting the effort and time into living a holy life and maintaining spiritual disciplines, reading his word, praying, um, cultivating uh, obedience to his word, etc., then we're in trouble. In our society today, we always want a quick fix. We would much rather read a book or attend a conference to solve our problems than actually work on long-term habits in our daily life. We would rather our spirituality 
be solved as an event rather than a long-term process. But God seldom works through events. He uses processes to transform us. Hype versus power. Hype is fake, it's fluff, it's man-made, superficial, just emotions, feels good, and attracts people to a person or organization. Whereas power is real, it has substance, it's from God, it's lasting, it's more than emotions, it convicts, instead of making us feel good, it convicts us, and it attracts people to Yeshua. I want to end by looking at a commandment that we're given in the Torah, Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. It's a command given three times in these verses. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning. Notice each time that commandment is repeated, it's augmented. It's emphasized even more than before. First time in verse 9, it says, The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And then the next time in verse 12, The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. And then finally, in verse 13, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Every time it's stated even more emphatically than the time before. Do you think God's trying to get the point across? <laughs> Just in case we missed it the first time, he says it again. In case we miss it that time as well, <laughs> he says it again. This must be something important, right? Keep in mind, where did this fire come from? That was on the altar from God. This was fire that was of divine origin. And I think there's a lesson here that I think Paul is drawing on. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says this phrase, do not quench the spirit. That word there is the word for putting out a fire. I think he's drawing on these commandments here in the Torah. Paul also talks about how we're, we're not to be lacking in spiritual fervor. It's like this analogy of burning, uh, Romans 12, 11. We're to cultivate this. We're to keep it burning, right? So there's this, we have the responsibility as believers to keep that flame that God started burning. But there's also the danger of strange fire. Remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? It says they came in and they offered strange fire before God and it did not bode well with them. They had a new fire kindled from God in them and burnt them up. I think this is kind of like the, that daily manna principle. You know, that initial blast of fire from heaven that started that fire on the altar, that was like amazing and spectacular. And Israel would always remember the origin of that fire. They'd always remember where it came from. But you could imagine perhaps some days the priest feeling like this duty of keeping that fire burning was kind of boring. Wouldn't it be great to like have more spectacular stuff going on? You forget how amazing it is that this fire is even there in the first place. 
I think there's two dangers in our spiritual lives. Either we start to crave strange things that God has not given us, or we let the fire go out. And instead, we need to be willing to stoke that, keep that zeal aflame. We're called to be fervent. We're called to be zealous for God and for his word. The true, you know, enthusiasm, you know where that word comes from? The Greek words en and theos, God, in God. To be enthusiastic means to be full of God. <laughs> and that's what we're called to be. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are merciful to us, that you choose to work with us, broken vessels that we are, that you are willing to get past the hardness of our hearts to speak to us and to draw us to yourself. Thank you that you love us so much, and thank you that you have given us what we need to accomplish the task that you have for us, and that these are tasks that we cannot do in our own strength, but that you are there to empower us and to propel us into that. I ask, Father, that this fire that you have started in each one of us, that we would be diligent to fan that flame and to see and to, to maintain our passion for you, our zeal for you. Please stir it up in our hearts again and help us to walk in that and not rely just on our feelings, but to rely on our faith that you are there with us and that you are there to help us in every task that you call us to. I thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.